Good morning, everyone. How is everybody's Thanksgiving? Yeah? All right, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 1. If you're taking notes, the title of my message is The Greatest Announcement of All. There have been some significant announcements in the history of the world. Winston Churchill announcing the defeat of Nazi Germany and Truman announcing the surrender of Japan to end World War II. When we landed on the moon in 1969, Neil Armstrong announced that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Over 10 million viewers tuned into the announcement in 2010 when LeBron James announced, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. And more recently, when Prince Charles was officially proclaimed the king of the UK on September 10th, 2022. In Luke chapter 1, we have the greatest announcement that has ever been made in the history of the world. There has never been, nor will ever be, an announcement more important than this. Literally, this is the moment that history has been created for. From eternity past, God created a plan to save sinful men and women, a plan of redemption. And that plan is set into motion with this announcement. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God was preparing the world for the coming of his son, for the Messiah to come and rescue mankind. But there were long periods of darkness and anticipation. For thousands of years, Israel was oppressed and occupied by competing superpowers. One commentator called them a political football. They were subjugated to the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans. They were constantly groaning under foreign rule. Would the Messiah ever come? Would God ever save them? Things were dark for a long time, and things seemed hopeless until the great announcement was made. Look at verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, so this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. This is John the Baptist's mom. She's six months pregnant. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he, Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, 
since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So with these words, the angel announced the greatest event in human history, the coming of the Son of God. And in this passage, we learn three things about God. Number one, God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. In verse 26, it says that Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Note, of the house of David. And then the second half of verse 32. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, God made some significant promises in the Old Testament. One of the greatest promises was that he would send the Messiah. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God promised to come down to earth as a child. And this child would be born of a virgin. God had also promised David a thousand years before Luke was written that his son would have a kingdom that would never end. 2 Samuel 7, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, there have been thousands, maybe millions of rulers throughout the ages, men and women of unequal power, sitting on their thrones. One of the longest was Queen Elizabeth. She ruled for 70 years. But it had to come to an end. They all died, and their rule was over. Not this king. Not this king. His kingdom would last forever. Now, there are two problems that come up with these promises. One, will they really happen? Will it really happen? I mean, for one thing, it's been a long time. The Israelites were waiting for the Messiah for over a millennia. That's like a thousand years. I have trouble waiting when I choose the wrong line at a toll booth. I'm serious. I get super anxious. Like if this car um, starts going ahead of me, I start to sweat. I, if this guy gets through the toll booth before me, I feel like my dog died. <laughs> I mean, and that's only, I'm, I just had to wait an extra maybe 10 seconds. They had to wait a thousand years. The, the promised deliverance and salvation seemed like it would never come, and they probably just gave up on it. 
Are you in a situation where you're waiting? Are you in a situation where you've given up? You've assumed that thing that you're hoping for will never happen. Church, don't give up. Don't give up. God does not promise to do all that we ask of him, but he does promise to take care of all our needs. He promises to work all things for our good. He promises to be with us in the darkest moments, and he promises in the end to make all things new. So they had to wait for a long time. Well, what about their sin? Maybe they think that the promise won't come because of their disobedience. They disobeyed and rejected God forever. They had forsaken God. So, so will God forsake them? Did they disqualify themselves? Is God out of patience? This announcement is a resounding no. Our sin is not going to prevent God from keeping his promises. It's not going to keep God from loving us and being gracious to us. His love is way too strong and way too powerful. Think of it like a fast-moving, powerful river. Now, try stopping that flow, the flow of that river, with a graham cracker. It won't work. Your, your sin cannot stop the torrent of God's love and grace. Thank God, because if we could stop it with our sin, we would. You know we would. This is such good news. If you are a follower of Christ, you can't stop God's love and grace. So just let it wash over you and let it fill each day with joy. Now, another problem is that this promise, it just seems impossible. It seems impossible. Look again at verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, this is a great question. It's actually a biology question. And like most of us, Mary understood how things worked. She was not ignorant. The angel is promising that the impossible is going to happen. Something that has never physically happened is going to happen. But how? How is this going to happen? Well, verse 35 tells us. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing, verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. So how can the impossible happen? Well, the Holy Spirit can do things that we can't. The Holy Spirit is God. Did you remember that? He's God. He's not limited in any way, shape, or form the way we are. If he comes upon you, he can do anything. He can bring pregnancy to a barren woman that's past the age of childbirth, and he can bring pregnancy to a virgin. This is not hard for him. For nothing, verse 37, is impossible with God. Nothing 
is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. I mean, let's think about some of the impossible, the impossible things that God has done. How can God create the earth in six days? Nothing is impossible with God. How can God part the Red Sea? Nothing is impossible with God. How can God become a man? Nothing is impossible with God. How can Jesus raise the dead? Nothing is impossible with God. How can sinful man be united to a holy God? Nothing is impossible with God. How can an unrighteous sinner be declared righteous in God's sight? Nothing is impossible with God. How can a woman become pregnant without having sexual relations? Nothing is impossible with God. The virgin birth is one of the most incredible miracles ever performed. That's why people ask the same question that Mary asked. How can this be? The answer is simple. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is what Christians have confessed for over a thousand years in the Apostles' Creed. He was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. But why was the virgin birth essential? Well, Mary had to be a virgin, not because she had to be sinless. Sex is not a sin, as long as it's practiced within the confines of marriage. It's actually a gift from God. And Mary was a sinner. We know this because we're all born in sin, but she also sinned when she lost Jesus as a boy during the Passover, and when she thought he lost his mind because of his teaching and and his following. The reason she needed to be a virgin is because the Messiah had to be born of God and woman. He had to be fully human and fully God. His conception by the Holy Spirit makes him the Holy Son of God, and his birth by the Virgin Mary makes him a man. If he was just the physical offspring of Joseph and Mary, He would have been nothing more than a man. Fallen humanity could not produce its own savior. He had to come from outside of sinful humanity. There needed to be a divine intervention. God sent Jesus into this world as the perfect son of God, born without sin, so that he could take on our sin and be our sinless substitutionary sacrifice. The virgin birth preserves the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. His conception by the Spirit points to his deity. His birth from a woman points to his humanity. There's mystery here, but once again, God has done the impossible. Is there anything in your life that seems impossible? Maybe it seems impossible for God to forgive you for all that you've done or or all that you continue to do. Maybe it seems impossible for God to restore your family or to find a spouse. Maybe it seems impossible for God to heal you or God to provide financially for you. Maybe it seems impossible for God to sustain you through suffering and trials. Maybe it seems impossible to get clean. 
He is the God of the impossible. He's the God of the impossible. He can forgive sin. He can reconcile. He can provide. He can heal. He can sustain. And he can break chains. He is the God of the impossible. The God of the virgin birth is the God who makes all things possible. So that's number one, God keeps his promises. Number two, God uses the humble. God uses the humble. Look at verse 28. It says, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. On September the 10th, 2022, Prince Charles was officially proclaimed the king on the Saturday following the queen's death. This event took place with great pomp and circumstance at St. James Palace in London in front of a very special ceremonial body known as the Accession Council, which is made up of 200 very important dignitaries and lords in the UK. Trumpets blared, flags were unfurled, guns were fired, and the official proclamation of Charles as king was announced before millions who were watching. The proclamation was then signed by the Prime Minister, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Lord Chancellor. It was read aloud from a balcony above Friary Court in St. James Palace, and for the first time since 1952, the national anthem was played with the words, God save the King. Well, the greatest announcement in the history of the world was not made in London. It was made in a town that was of no importance. The angel Gabriel ignored Judea and Jerusalem, which was at the heart of God's work through the centuries, and he came instead to Galilee, which is way out of the way, and the shoddy, corrupt, unclean town of Nazareth. You remember when Nathanael found out Jesus was from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This announcement was also not made to millions. It didn't come with great pageantry or ceremony. And it didn't come to the highest and most important people in the land. It came to a poor, humble, young Jewish teenager. Martin Luther said he might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' daughter, who was fair, rich, clad in gold, embroidered raiment, and attended by a retinue of maids in waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. So commentators think that she was probably 14 years old at the oldest. Imagine that. Think of yourself at 14 years old. She was young and poor. She was among the lowly. Just an uneducated peasant living in an insignificant town. One commentator said, it is doubtful whether Gabriel could have found a more unlikely person to greet anywhere in Israel. She was a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. But it was to her that the angel came. Now, again, just try to imagine what this was like. She's in her early teens. She is probably doing her chores. And the angel Gabriel appears to her. 
like us, she would have almost no category for this. A powerful spiritual being that stands in the presence of God is in her kitchen. And a lot of people understand angels, misunderstand angels. Gabriel was not a plump little toddler in a cloth diaper with wings. He was a powerful, holy warrior who spoke for God. That's why the first thing he has to say all the time is, do not be afraid. I mean, if an angel appears to you, you most likely pee your pants. (laughs) So, So Mary is scared. She's scared, and she's trying to get her head around this incredible being who is announcing to her the greatest news in the world. And in verse 31, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. She is going to be the mother of the Messiah, the mother of Jesus, the Savior of the world. So you're in your early teens, and you're told that the Son of God is going to come from you. Try getting your mind around this. Mary was given the greatest honor that any woman has ever been given. She was chosen to be the mother of Jesus. She wasn't chosen because of her power or wisdom or position. She was actually chosen for her low estate. That's because God's grace is for the lowly and it's for the needy. By choosing God, God is making a significant statement. He is showing the importance of humility. Why is Gabriel coming to such a humble place and such a humble person? Because humility and humiliation is going to be at the center of his reign. Jesus is going to humble himself in ways that are unimaginable, even unto death. I mean, you can be really humble in certain situations, but usually there comes a a point where you can't take it anymore, where you say enough is enough, where you fight back, especially if it's unjust. Jesus is going to humble himself to death. The cross is going to be at the center of his kingdom and his reign. This is not going to be a King Charles with a priceless gold crown on his head. It's going to be a humble, humiliated king being tortured on a cross with a crown of thorns on his head and our sin and filth on his shoulders. Jesus is going to enter into the misery of our lost and fallen condition. What better way to show what he had come to do than for him to be born to a woman like Mary from a town like Nazareth? Now, God is also making another point here. We, we think that God uses those who are important and powerful and connected and wealthy. But that's not who he uses. He uses the humble. He uses ordinary people to accomplish great things. Mary perfectly reflects the person that God unexpectedly chooses to use. She brings no outstanding credentials There is nothing on her resume other than her availability and her willingness to serve. Isaiah 66, 2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's what God loves. 
God loves those who are humble in spirit. He loves to use those who are weak and marginalized and insignificant and to use them for his glory. External things count very little for God. He doesn't look at how smart we are or how powerful or beautiful or gifted. He looks at those who are humble, those who see their need, those who acknowledge their weakness and spiritual lack. God uses ordinary people. And this is good news for us. Just look at this church. This church was not built and sustained by the great and powerful. It was built and continues to be built by ordinary church members that love Christ and serve him. At the conference, CJ talked about a book called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. I read this book, it's an outstanding book. It's about D.A. Carson's dad who was an ordinary pastor in a very small church in Canada. And it's very encouraging because, I hate to break this to you, all of your pastors are ordinary pastors. Except for Jared, he's kind of extraordinary. But the rest of us, though, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. The rest of us, we are or, we're just ordinary pastors. And that's okay. You know why? Because God loves to use ordinary pastors and ordinary people to accomplish great things. He comes not to the self-righteous and self-confident. He comes to the humble, to those who aren't much in the eyes of the world. Do you realize, I want you to realize this, do you realize that God wants to use you? God wants to use you with all your weaknesses and limitations and flaws because he uses the humble. Now, let me clarify something that Roman Catholicism has historically misunderstood. When Gabriel said, greetings, O favored one, this is verse 28, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you, he was saying, God is giving grace to you, Mary. God is going to bless you, not because of your own merit or some internal worthiness, but because of his grace. The word the angel used to favor comes from the Greek word for grace, which is charis. It means to be treated with undeserved kindness. Martin Luther translated Gabriel's greeting like this. He said, oh Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. And this next quote is from Daryl Bach. It's a commentary. It's a little bit long, but stay with me. He says, the angel's greeting has often been misunderstood. Gabriel was not worshiping Mary, nor did he say that she was full of grace. These ideas come from a prayer commonly used by Roman Catholics. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. The problem with this prayer is that it treats Mary as the source of grace rather than as an object of grace. People pray to Mary because they think she has grace to give, but the phrase full of grace is based on a Latin translation that is really a mistranslation. Even Roman Catholic Bible scholars admit this, although most still think that they should pray to Mary. What the Bible actually says is that Mary was the recipient of God's grace not a repository of grace. The word that the English Standard Version rightly translates as favored one refers to the grace that Mary was given by God and not to any grace that she can give to others. So the way that Mary helps us 
is not by giving us grace, but by showing that God can give us the same kind of grace that he gave to her. Now, Mary was the only woman in the world chosen to be the mother of Jesus. She was given the unspeakable pleasure and privilege of nursing and raising the Son of God. And for that, we must call her blessed. Just because others have made too much of her, we must not think too little of her. Her example proves that God shows unmerited favor to lowly sinners. God uses the humble. Number three, my last point. God's son is superior. God's son is superior. Look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And in verse 35, toward the end it says, Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Now one of the cool things about this passage is how it parallels with the previous passage. Both Zechariah and Mary were greeted by the angel Gabriel. Both are troubled and unafraid. Both are going to have an impossible conception, miracle babies. One in old age and one is a virgin. Both were told the mission of their child. Both children were assigned a name. Both asked how the impossible is going to happen. And both were told that their children would be great. And we all want that, don't we? We want our kids to be great. We kind of know that we're not that great, but we hope our kids might be. You know, this is why people talk about their kids so much. You know, like how their six-year-old is doing calculus and their, eight years are, their eight-year-old's already on the Olympic soccer team. Brian Regan tells a funny story about he wished he was one of the handful of astronauts who walked on the moon. That way, when someone is blatantly bragging and boasting about their accomplishments, he could just nonchalantly say, I walked on the moon. Well, Mary has even that beat. When the other moms from Nazareth are all bragging about their kids <laughs> and all their accomplishments, she can just casually say, my son is God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. She's got them all beat. <laughs> so, so there are similarities, right, between Zechariah and Mary, but Luke also wants us to see the differences. He wants us to see the contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. He wants us to be able to definitively answer the question, who is greater, John or Jesus? So let's look at the differences. Elizabeth was barren, but Mary had never even been with a man. John would be a prophet crying out in the wilderness. Jesus would reign on David's throne forever. John would be great before the Lord. Jesus would be great without qualification. John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. John would prepare for God's coming. Jesus was God's coming. He was God in the flesh. He was the son of the most high God. Jesus was and is superior in every respect. He is infinitely superior. He stands alone. 
He rises above all. He is the unique Son of God. He is holy and set apart, fully God and fully man. He is the glorious one. He is the exalted one. He is the worthy one. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is superior. He's unique. Let me ask you a question. Does he occupy a unique place in your heart? Does he rise above all else that matters in your life? Is he exalted in your life? Does does he receive the highest glory? Does he get the most attention? Does he matter more than anything else in your life? If he does, then the only appropriate response is to serve him and to trust him. And that is exactly what Mary does. I love what she says in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary is a powerful example to us of someone who trusts God's plan. She said to the angel, I am the servant of the Lord. I am the servant of the Lord. Can you say that? That you are a servant of the Lord. It feels a little awkward in our day and age where individual rights are such an emphasis, but if you are a true follower of Christ, you are a servant of the Lord, and you can trust his plan for you. There are two things that stand out in this passage about the Lord's servant. When you are the servant of the Lord, you usually don't get to choose how you serve. Mary didn't choose this for her life. And at this point, she had no idea how difficult this calling would be. But she trusted in the Lord. You know, the Lord is the one that decides how he wants to use you and where you will be best positioned to serve him. And it won't look the same as someone else. One of the most effective traps of the enemy is to tempt you to want to be someone else, to have what they have, to be who they are. But God created you perfectly with your gifts and your weaknesses and strengths and placed you where you are so that you can serve God and others. You don't have to be someone else. God wants you to be you and to serve those around you for your joy and his glory. So let's stop trying to be someone else. Let's stop trying to get God to follow us in our plans and let's follow him. Let's be servants of the Lord. The other thing we see here is serving will also cost you. And it cost Mary dearly. To accept the virgin birth, Mary had to be willing to give up Joseph, the man she was engaged to marry. He couldn't take her as his wife if she was pregnant with a child that was not his own. She had to be willing to give up her reputation. Imagine the gossip in a small town like Nazareth. Everyone would be wondering who the father was or if Joseph had jumped the gun. There would always be people who called her son a bastard. And some might have demanded that she die according to the law. And think of the other hardships. The pain of pregnancy and childbirth. The forced journey from her home to Bethlehem. Having Jesus in a makeshift barn having to flee as fugitives to Egypt because Herod was hunting her son down. But the greatest suffering, the sword that pierced her soul, 
came when she had to watch her precious son when he was arrested and tried and found guilty and beaten to a pulp and hung up on a cross like an animal. She didn't realize it, but this is what she signed up for when she said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. What an example of faith and trust. And God calls us to follow her in this. Can you trust him when things don't go your way? Can you trust him when your dreams don't come true? Can you trust him with the burdens that you carry for your family? Can you trust him when you experience trials and sorrow and pain and grief? Can you trust him when others sin against you and they hurt you? Can you trust him with the things that you fear? Can you trust him when everything seems out of control? Mary did. She did not raise any objections. She did not hold out for an easier calling. She did not ask God to explain what would happen later if she said yes. All she needed to know was what God wanted her to do. And once she knew that, she didn't need anything else. Covenant fellowship. Let's be like Mary. Let's say to God every day, I am the servant of the Lord, and I trust your plan. And I know it will work together for my good and for your glory. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we thank you. Thank you that this is a church that is full of servants of the Lord. God, you have made us your servants. And I pray that you would help us to serve you when it's difficult, when it's hard, when it's uphill both ways, when it's painful, when it's not what we wanted. Help us to be servants like Mary. And Lord, I pray that you would help us above all to remember that you are supreme that you reign above it all, that you humbled yourself so greatly, that you would die on that Roman cross to pay for all our sins. Lord, help us not only to be servants, help us to be humble. And I pray that you would use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.